This is Rohit Bhargava, author of The Non-Obvious Guide to Virtual Meetings and Remote Work, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing fields of modern marketing and sales. And don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book podcast. If I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you some time. And if you have a question that I can answer, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com and I might play it and answer it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. And now, a word from our sponsor. <laughs> this show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency called Artillery, where we work primarily with manufacturers and industrial companies who call us in when they're serious about growth, but have realized that their old school marketing and sales is almost completely ineffective at attracting the modern buyer who doesn't want to be marketed or sold to. In our engagements with clients, we take a sales-based approach to their marketing and help them align their sales and marketing around their most profitable target customers, arm the sales team with technology to make selling easier, create sales content that makes buying easier, not to mention getting better results on Google, and then show them how to insource as much of the marketing as possible. For more about us, visit salesartillery.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome back for the sixth time, Rohit Bhargava to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Non-Obvious Guide to Virtual Meetings and Remote Work, published by Idea Press. Rohit Bhargava is on a mission to help the world be more open-minded by teaching others how to be non-obvious thinkers. He's the founder of The Non-Obvious Company and is an entertaining and original, non-boring keynote speaker on innovation and trust. He previously spent 15 years in leadership roles at two renowned ad agencies, Leo Burnett and Ogilvy, and he's the Wall Street Journal best-selling author of six books and has been invited to deliver keynote presentations in 32 countries around the world. And the most significant thing on his bio is that he is now the second member of the Marketing Book Podcast Six Timers Club. Okay, that's not really on his bio, but I just I just put that on there. And interesting <laughs> fact, Rohit is a lifelong lover of the Olympics. Rohit, congratulations on the non-obvious guide to virtual meetings and remote work. And welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. You know, sometimes I think uh, I'm just writing books so that I can uh, be back on your show. That's my primary motivation. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the dream I tell myself, but uh, I know I know that's not the truth, but it's uh, terrific. And, you know, Mark Schaefer, he's the other member of the Marketing Book Six Timers Club, and now he was there first, and he is the uh, king of the Marketing Book Podcast. But, uh, you know, we're bringing the heat, and this will drive him up the wall. 
I guess that makes me the queen, so I'll take it. <laughs> hey, you know, whatever whatever works for you. I may have to come up with an, another uh, name for you. But have you been to any Olympics? <laughs> well, I have, and I think uh, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm super bummed that they got postponed, but I'm hoping that they do still happen next year. So we'll see uh, what happens there. But yeah, I've been to five of them so far. My goodness. And you were planning on going to Japan? Of course. Yeah. In fact, I already pre-purchased... Uh, probably too many tickets. So we'll see what happens. I mean, that's the silver lining, right? If something happens and things get canceled, uh, for example, when they pushed the Olympics, I got a refund for all of my flights for our whole family to Tokyo. So it was like I got paid. So (sighs) even though I was disappointed, I was like, oh, I got my refund back for my flights. So I kind of felt like I made money, even though obviously I didn't. Yeah, well, don't drink it all in one place. So (laughs) Rohit, you've written this book, Guide to Virtual Meetings and Remote Work. What a coincidence that we're also in the middle of this global pandemic. Boy, just the timing is just <laughs> surprising. What happened there? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I saw this coming. No, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you uh, it's, shorted it's, a lot of stocks, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think it's it's fast reaction is, is what it is, you know? And I think what's nice about this guide and, and all the other guides in our series is they're they're really based on expertise that people who've earned it have in their heads, And I think that, you know, having written multiple types of books, and I think your audience will kind of be interested in this process behind it. Some of my books are deeply researched. And so they take much longer because you have to go and find sources, you have to interview people, you have to cite everything. And then when you write a guide like this, which is kind of based on the insights that you've already learned in your head, it's much more about kind of sharing those. And so I didn't really, I brought in a lot of perspectives, but there was a vastly different level of research that was required in order to do it, which is partially why I think I could do it so much more quickly. Well, let me just quote from uh, the introduction where it says, in this book, you will learn how to avoid distractions and be more productive no matter what happens around you. Choose the right technology to get things done more quickly and easily. Assess your working style to divide your day between deep versus shallow work. Conquer the loneliness and isolation that often comes with remote work. Deliver a compelling virtual presentation in a meeting, webinar, or online training session. Collaborate with people you've never met and colleagues working remotely. Manage and prevent conflicts in a virtual setting with more emotional intelligence. Effectively lead a virtual team and improve accountability and prepare for the virtual future of work and be more flexible. So I have a feeling a lot of listeners around the world (laughs) have uh, just heard something there that relates to them. And just on a personal note, you know, we, we worked in an office here in town. The place is emptied out. Everyone's working r- virtually, remotely. And I've even decided to let the leaks go uh, because I just didn't know when we'd all be, be coming back. And so this book personally was, was very helpful. And the only problem with this book is that it costs $100. What's going on with that, Rohit? <laughs> you must be shopping in the wrong place, my friend. <laughs> it's, it's free. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. It's uh well, the digital version's free. And and you know, part of it was was just me trying to share some of these things that I'd figured out as somebody who'd been working remotely for pretty much the last 5 years or so, but before that had been an office-based employee. And so I had this perspective of of kind of both sides of it, right? Yeah. And tell that story about the your office in DC that you got and then and then you yeah, lost. And then I lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, the opening story of the book is um is is sort of about this this moment in time when I had started working at a at a big agency and we were moving from one big office building in DC to another and and as part of the move they'd assigned everybody new places to sit. And at that point because of the work I'd been doing I I was chosen as one of the people to get an office with a door, which was a big deal because I had windows and the door and it was just I mean it's kind of an old school office, right? It wasn't an open uh, plan office. And, and so I really felt, felt proud of, of getting my first office. And it was only a couple of years after that, when I started doing more traveling as part of my job, I was working remotely more and, and pretty quickly after that happened, the head of the office said, look, you're never there. You're not using your office. So like, you, you don't need it anymore. We're going to give it to somebody else. And I was bummed. Like, I was, And, and we're going to pay you less. No I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, they didn't. They didn't go with that one, which would have been <laughs> like a double hit. Uh, but no, they 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 just uh, they they said, "Look, you don't need the office." And, and as much as I didn't like to admit it, like that was probably true. I just wasn't there, and I didn't want to to be there as much. And and that's kind of the opening story of the book. And what it what it's meant to do is put this uh, introduced this this situation where I was an office bound worker, then I was working remotely, but then the twist, and, and I'm a big fan of the, the twists, because that I think brings the non obviousness of the story out. The twist was I realized that I started to miss the office, like I actually wanted to go not every day, but I wanted to go because I was missing the human connection. And so mm-hmm. the perspective that that introduces for this book, I think is very different than any other book that you'll see about virtual meetings or being a remote worker, because it's not not meant to convince you that it's better. And thus the kind of subtitle or, or the twist in the title, uh, if you kind of look at the whole thing is the non-obvious guide to virtual meetings and remote work when you just can't be there in person. Mm-hmm. And the perspective that I tried to share with that is like, yeah, it's better in a lot of t- cases to be there in person, but we can't like now we can't because of a pandemic, but like sometimes we can't because it's too expensive to fly. Sometimes we can't because we're on paternity leave or maternity leave. Like, yeah, I mean, there's many reasons why you can't make it to the office sometimes, but how do you still be productive? And that's really what this book is about. Yes. Yeah, so in answer to everyone's question, this is not a book about how awesome it is to work remotely <laughs> and how great virtual meetings can be. And uh, no, it, it, does not affirm that working remotely is better than being face to face. I'm sometimes you don't have a choice, but you know there are definitely benefits to being face to face. So explain though the difference between remote work and working from home because I had always sort of uh, grouped those two together. Yeah, the the biggest difference is uh, remote work is your job is done somewhere other than the office. Your entire job is done remotely. You don't have to go into the office ever. Maybe you don't even have an office to go into. Uh, You're a freelancer. Like that's, uh, you know, that's remote work. Working from home is you have an office, but on a certain day you chose to work from home. And those are very different situations if you think about it, because having the infrastructure of an office, having people in the office, and then choosing to take a day out or multiple days a week out to work from home means you can be really intentional about what you do from home versus what you do in the office. Like if you're working from home one day a week, you probably shouldn't have any virtual meetings because you can do those meetings when you're in the office anyway. Mm -hmm. So why not take that one day that you're working from home to actually do your work? Uh, Assuming you obviously have work that you can do remotely, right? So like that's the, the biggest difference. And I think that a lot of times they just get grouped together. Right. So... It's, you know, like you're following me around in my house, which you're not, uh, but it's, you said the three great enemies of working from home 
are the fridge, the bed, and the TV. Guilty. So also <laughs> talk though about remote work is a learn a learned skill. What are some of the or I guess you could remind listeners what are some of the real challenges of working remotely? Well, I mean, you you kind of raised some of them already, right? This idea of, of just distraction, of uh, of of isolation. Uh, sometimes communications can be harder to communicate with with your colleagues or with other people. Uh, uh, the boundaries, knowing your sort of boundaries between when you're going to work and when you're not going to work, are, are are sometimes difficult because you just end up working longer or working more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which and, makes and your work of, less productive, I've found. Um, sometimes. I mean, it kind of, that's sort of a, maybe a personality thing. I mean, I think that, that there are some people who, if they work 16 hours a day, they'd get 16 hours of work done a day, but, but their work, their personal life would suffer, right? Their, their family relationships would suffer. Like there's other things that you give up. I mean, there's definitely people who, when they work longer, like they get more done because they're working twice as long as everyone else. But is that really a good thing? Right. Yeah, That's, and I guess like for for me, I I make a point of not looking at any email after I'm finished. I, I look at it the next day um, for a couple reasons, but one is it, it, it distracts me. I start thinking about work again, but also I don't want people to think that I'm, I'm available twenty four seven. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, and one of the features that I think people don't use all the time is because there's this, this balance, right? Where you say, look, I don't want to be available 24 seven, but if I see the email and I don't respond right away, then I'll forget, or I won't have time later. And most email providers have this feature where you can schedule your send. So you can respond to email literally within 30 seconds of getting it, but you schedule the send to send the next day. So the impression someone gets is, oh, they got back to me within 24 hours, but not instantly. And you get the benefit of having done the email and getting it off your to-do list instantly. Like people don't use those sorts of tools and techniques to to maximize their time enough, I think. Yeah. So you mentioned isolation. Explain the difference between isolation and loneliness. Not the same thing. No. Um, isolation and, and loneliness are, 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 you know, can be really different because the idea is that, that isolation is just you being disconnected from other people, sometimes because of processes that are in place, right? You're just isolated because like you can be isolated, for example, if someone has a meeting and doesn't include you. Now you're isolated. That doesn't necessarily mean you're lonely. Like loneliness is an emotional state and that can happen and it can go along with being isolated. But but there are, and I know that many of us have seen this either in, in our real lives with people that we interact with or maybe in, in media and entertainment. I mean, there are people who can be deeply lonely while being surrounded by people. Uh, so that is not a, a state that is just based on, oh, I'm working from home by myself and therefore I'm lonely. And again, these are two things that we need to try and separate. Like, am I just isolated from work and therefore I'm disconnected and I'm frustrated because of that? Or am I actually feeling lonely? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's funny you mentioned isolation because, you know, when you're not invited to a meeting, it's really kind of unusual for me because my family here at the house, they've been having family meetings and I am, they are not inviting me to them. So I don't know what they're up to, but I'm, I don't know. I'm trying not to. Well, that, that can only mean, that can only mean one thing. The meetings are about you. <laughs> Very likely not. Maybe, you know, who knows? Who knows? You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep worrying about these things, but you surprisingly to me, I mean, another, a lot of things in the book were revelations for me, but also affirmations of things that I had been thinking, but hadn't really been 
very well self-articulated. You talk in the book about how personal brands matter more when you're working virtually. I was wondering if you could talk about that and also remind folks the difference between a personal brand and a reputation. Yeah, uh, well, a personal brand uh, is really what you say about yourself. And the reputation is is what other people are saying about you. I mean, I think that's the biggest difference between those two. And I think when it, when it comes to why your personal brand matters more virtually, uh, I think that that the biggest part of the reason is because it fills the gaps. And and what I mean by that is when someone doesn't see you uh, working, uh, especially when a boss or a colleague doesn't see you working, they have to make up a story in their head about what you're doing at that time. And if you have a personal brand and, and a reputation that that says to them, oh, they're going to deliver and over-deliver what they do, in that moment when they don't know what you're doing, they'll assume you're working. And if you don't have that reputation, they'll assume that you're goofing off or you went to go see a movie or you know whatever whatever else they can imagine you're doing, even if you happen to be working. And, and this is something I really, really struggled with a lot when I was working remotely while being in my full-time role at the agency because I might have been working on something, but people didn't assume I was. And I didn't have a lot of visibility and I didn't make a lot of visibility for myself into what I was doing. I didn't send people daily updates saying, hey, here's what I got today. I didn't set schedule check-ins just so people knew proactively, just so I was being proactive about what I worked on. I mean, these are the sorts of things that we have to do when working remotely to make ourselves visible so that people don't invent some sort of story for what else we are doing besides working. Mm-hmm. So, Rohit, as it relates to virtual meetings, you couldn't have been more clear in your book that virtual meetings suck. (laughs) And we can talk about that, but there's one bit of granularity that I really want to get into in this interview, and that is the rules of virtual meetings. And every one of these, and there aren't too many, but I I looked at that and I thought, yes! Yes! It's things that are irritating me about these virtual meetings, of which we're all having lots more of them. And I was wondering if uh, we could talk about a, for a few of them. One of them, number one, be on time. What is going on with that? Is it some sort of power play? I can remember working in office environments where the, the boss would want to come in late to make it look like they were important or something, but it's driving me nuts. No, it's uh, it's basic human psychology. And, and anyone will tell you that uh, the farther you have to go to get somewhere, the longer it will take you, the more on time you tend to be. Because if I know I have to be at a meeting that is 40 minutes away, I'm going to leave on time. Uh, whereas if my commute is 30 seconds, I wait till the last minute. And now all of a sudden I haven't accounted for time to plug my microphone in or to make sure that my internet's working or to have my computer restart or like all of these other things that that generally don't seem like they take a long time unless you're getting to your desk at 11.01 for that 11 o'clock meeting. And now you have to do all those things. And before you complete all those things, all of a sudden it's 11.10 and now you're 10 minutes late. So I wonder if people who call the meetings are better at being on time because it's, you know, it's just irritating when people are, are late. And, you know, there's this, the technology is there that you can get a warning <laughs> on your calendar five minutes before something starts. There's there's all kinds of technology to remind you. Yeah, but, you know, the problem is, like, you get that warning five minutes to go, and you're like, oh, five minutes, 
I have enough time to make a cup of coffee. Like, <laughs> right. Whereas if you were driving to a meeting or, or going somewhere for the meeting, you wouldn't think that you'd be like, obviously I don't have enough time. I need to get there uh, in time to, to talk to the person at the front desk so that they can check me in and let everyone else know that I'm there. Like we build that buffer in, in the real life, but we don't do it when we're doing these meetings from home. Yeah. Yeah. So just to everybody listening, be on time. Thank you. Now the second one, and you said this is the most important rule, four words, use the mute button. (laughs) Yeah. And people misunderstand this because sometimes what they assume that to mean is go on mute for the whole call, which is not what I mean. Mm -hmm. What I mean is when you have something to say, or when you want people to hear you laughing at something, for example, you use the mute button to turn yourself off mute and go, you know, go live. And when you don't need to say something, when you're moving papers around or when you're typing, go on mute. Like that's just a basic thing that we should learn how to do, put ourselves on and off mute. And a lot of people, I mean, it's so easy. I mean, on a zoom call, you just press the space bar and you're on or off mute. Like that's how easy it is. But like, we don't use that skill and we should. Right. So Rohit's talking about you go on mute. And then when you want to speak, you just press the space bar it takes you off mute, and then you lift your hand up, and you're you're off mute. That's a a, a nice little uh, trick. Here, it's like a walkie-talkie, you yes, know, <laughs> from the old times. <laughs> Roger, over. So <laughs> another one is, and this brings to mind a, a a client of mine who you met once, uh, Larry Lombardi. You met him in North Carolina. So he, um, it's avoid backlighting, and so we were always using uh, just for that particular client, we were using our own Zoom whenever we needed to speak to him. And then uh, when all this happened, we said, Larry, you, you probably ought to get your own Zoom because there's a lot of people he needed to reach out to, but he was always meeting in person. So believe it or not, I spent about an hour, which I was happy to do. And with I was I was at home, he was at home, but he was getting all situated and I was showing him how, you, well, you need to raise your laptop up so that you're looking straight at it and not down. And then he was sitting in front of a bay window and <laughs> I said, Larry, you look like one of those witness protection people where, because he was completely darkened out, you know, and he had everything but the, the garbled voice. And so, you know, we, we, we showed him, you know, got him turned around and he was, the, the lighting was really important, but do not sit with a light or window behind you. It really makes a big difference. And I think, did I see you something post something about how you could have the best lighting in the world from Hollywood experts, but if you just sit in front of a window where the light is coming in on your face, it looks better? Yeah. I mean, that would solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. And look, my, in my home office, I'm lucky because I have the way it's situated. I, I do face a window uh, and that just helps me from a writing perspective. But when I started doing these virtual talks, I realized it actually really helps the lighting. And, and so all I have to do is like my entire lighting in my home office is face a window, like three words. But I realized when I was when I was talking to a friend, a friend of mine that that may not work for all people with all skin tones. Like sometimes if you're just facing window, like you'll look washed out. So you have to kind of adjust for what's what's best for you. But it's definitely better than sitting in front of a window and being backlit unless that's the look you're going for uh, or you're trying to protect your identity. Yeah. If you're talking to the press and you're an FBI informant or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So the next one you could have called TMI too much information, but you say don't overshare. And that could be when you're sharing your screen with somebody, think about what you're what's what's on your screen. It's the same thing as whenever you had tech support and the folks would say, okay, now we're going to access your screen with your permission. Please close down anything you you don't want shared. 
<laughs> and, yeah, uh, and, that was and, probably to protect their employees from the trauma of stuff <laughs> that people have on their computers. But also, if you're on camera, you need to be thinking about what people are seeing. Yeah, I mean, what's behind you on camera, but also when you're sharing your screen, like, for example, like, let's say you're sharing your screen for a presentation, now you need to switch windows to something else. Mm -hmm. People all the time, they switch windows, and one of the windows they switch to is their email. And now we're seeing every email that they have on their email, uh, including who sent it and what the subject lines are. Like, if you need to switch screens and you're trying to show your email, you're trying to show one email, turn screen share off, open the right thing that you need to, then turn it back on. Uh, I mean, there's ways to do it where you protect your own privacy because like, do you really want people seeing every email that you've gotten? Probably not. Yeah. Especially when some of the subject lines might say about our job interview for you or (laughs) emails from corporate recruiters or, um, or about the uh, tutus that you ordered. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Rohit, we agreed not to talk about that. Last time I share my screen with you. So the other one, another one was silence distractions. So turn off I had to uh, a colleague the other day, you know, he's got the ring doorbell device and he'd had a bunch of uh, construction work being done at his home and the guys were walking by and we were on the call and the, the ring device that's connected to his phone kept going off. And I finally had to send a meme to him and it had a picture of Bill Lumberg from the office standing over the cubicle wall. And it said, if you could silence your phone, that would be great. And anyway... <laughs> He, he didn't realize that he was being heard. He could have just muted it. But it's the same same sort of thing where people don't understand. Now, the other one, the last one, was uh, brings to mind a story I read in the Wall Street Journal not too long ago. And it was, and I don't think they were joking. They were saying, please, people, wear pants. And number seven is dress appropriately. And the thing in the Wall Street Journal they were talking about was somebody, the dog, somebody's dog needed to get in and everybody knew that everyone else was working at home, but they got up and, and walked away and everybody could see that they weren't, they weren't wearing uh, <laughs> pants or something, or they were inappropriately dressed. Let's just, let's just put it that way. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I mean, wearing, wearing pants on a, on a virtual conference is a bit l- like lying, I think, in the sense that you could lie and just assume that you're smart enough not to get caught. Mm-hmm. Or you could not lie and then you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> and I think that wearing pants is kind of the same thing. Like if you wore pants and you did have to get up, you wouldn't have to worry about forgetting that you were on the video call and now you're not wearing pants. So like how hard is it to put some pants on? Well, it, it's it's difficult for me, obviously. So I wear, I've been wearing shorts at the house. Um, but what I do do is I'll put on like a collared dress shirt um, and it's really more out of respect <laughs> for the people I'm talking to. Now you can't see yeah. it, Rowan, but I am wearing a collared shirt for this, uh, for this interview. So maybe you can send me a picture afterwards. Right. Well, I have a proof with clients later today. And I just thought, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, um, you know, wear my, um, you know, some t-shirt or something like that. So uh, let's talk a little bit in our remaining time about virtual presentations I was wondering if you could share uh, some information from an article you wrote not too long ago that I'm going to include in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com about what you've learned quite recently about doing virtual presentations. Just uh, I think it's about 15. You, you finally, after about 15, you wrote this and shared what you had been learning. Yeah, uh, there, there's, a, there's a, a bunch of things there. I mean, the first is 
that I, I believe that uh, in a virtual presentation, first of all, the audio is way more important than the video. And even though the video is much more noticeable in terms of what you look at, people will realize much more quickly if the audio is crap and they can't hear you. Yes. So start with the audio. And if you're going to spend money on anything, I mean, not that you can buy a webcam now because they all seem to be sold out, but if you're going to spend money on anything, get a decent microphone because, and I'm sure you, 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 I know agree with this. Uh, I'm always pestering the guest on the show to get. Yeah. You have some great show notes that are, I mean, you're, you're very detailed in, in terms of all of the people who do these podcasts in terms of like, you'll send all of your guests, this whole list saying, Hey, here's what you need to sound good. Yeah. Otherwise the listeners aren't going to take you seriously. And there's a, until recently there was a $22 Logitech H390 headset that works beautifully. And a lot of authors use it. A lot of people use it. And what I think people don't think about or realize is what you just said, your audio is more important. So if they can hear you more clearly, and I recommend using a you know, a little headset with a microphone, noise canceling microphone. It mm-hmm. really helps you more than you realize because people can hear you because they can't hear you as well as in person. And they definitely may not be looking at you or can't read your uh, facial expressions and body language. Yeah. And you know, the interesting thing is that when you sound better, it, it psychologically somehow it makes your video look better, even though it, you might not have the greatest video. Like people just, they see it as looking better because you sound better. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I mean, that's one big thing. Uh, the other things that I figured out is, is definitely shorter presentations. Keeping it shorter makes a big, big difference because nobody can sit through what used to be an entertaining 45-minute talk from the stage doesn't translate to just do the same thing. Not even for a non-boring keynote speaker. Not even then. Yeah, not even then. (laughs) And so I used to start trying to do that, and now I don't even try and do that anymore. I mix it up. I I use different uh, interactions. I get people to imagine things. I have polls. I have uh, live Q&As. I do a bunch of different things like that. The other thing that I've been doing for the first time in my life after having done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of presentations is I'm presenting sitting down, which is very different from an energy point of view than standing up. And so what I found is by sitting down, like you get this different relationship. I choose to do it. I mean, obviously I could just prop my camera up and stand up and present virtually. I mean, people do that. Mm-hmm. I choose not to though, because I like the, I like the energy of us having a conversation. And I feel like when I'm sitting down, it's not like me presenting at you. It feels more conversational in the style of how I do it. And so I choose to sit down. And, but what that means is I have to work twice as hard to build the energy because I'm not standing to get that energy, which is what I'm used to. Yeah. But I guess and, it also gives you a little bit of empathy because everyone's sitting down who's <laughs> attending. Yeah. 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 But I think the energy is, is it's just, um, it's just different. I feel like it's more personal. I feel like it's more like a conversation. I feel like people look at me and they're like, Oh, this guy's not presenting at me and trying to make this a stage thing. We're just having a conversation. Interesting. Are there any other things that, uh, have occurred to you as, uh, you've learned how to do, uh, basically how to take webinars to the next level? Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's a couple of just really basic things. I mean, what a lot of people do is they will take their their laptop. And even if you're using the webcam on your laptop, like prop your laptop up so that your webcam is at your eye level. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise it looks like you're looking down, uh, which is not a great look. And it and it just looks looks weird. Yeah. Uh, so that's a super simple thing to do. Lots of people have, have kind of shared that. It's 
it's not, it's certainly not non-obvious advice, but it is good advice. So it's overlooked that. a lot. I'm glad you mentioned Yeah, that. it's overlooked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's probably a joke in there about overlooking like that you ah, intend to make. I'm a like, poet and I don't good. know it. Yeah. You're a, gosh. You're un- you're unintentionally uh, <laughs> clever with uh, with those. Rowan, if my wife were here, she'd be telling you not to laugh at the jokes because it only encourages <laughs> me and we don't want that. Yeah, no, we definitely don't want that. So yeah, that I think, and also uh, looking at the camera instead of looking at the video of the person that you're talking to, which that's is a really hard one. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. Because, because when you're speaking to someone on a virtual call, especially if you're doing it kind of interview style, your tendency is to want to look them in the eye, Yeah, like video of them. But when you look the video of them in the eye, it doesn't look like you're looking at them. And yeah. when you look at the camera, it looks like you're looking at them. So you almost have to kind of get good at pretending like the camera is the person and see the person out of the corner of your eye without actually looking at them. Yeah. And I can't remember if it was in your book or not. They all kind of run together. Uh, <laughs> about <Yeah. laughs> putting a sticker or a post-it note or like an arrow pointing yeah. towards the yeah. center of the camera. Yeah. That's a, that's a great trick. And I think I did have, there was um, a suggestion from somebody. I think I have a lot, I have a lot of suggestions and, and insights from other people. So I have like more than 50 experts in this book who've all shared their own best insight that I compiled into the book as well. So it's yeah. not just me saying, here's my advice. It's also kind of bringing in advice from people who've been doing this for a lot longer. Yeah. So row it. I was an English major in college. There, I admitted it, and and so were you. Yeah. So I had my my uh, I, I smiled a bit when I read on page one nineteen, the secret to better virtual communications. When I visit any group of students or am invited to do a guest lecture, I often share how lucky I feel that I was an English major as an undergraduate. The world has been moving toward English majors. I tell them because many of our communications are based on being a good writer. Talk about why that is so. Well, look, social media, I mean, that's the shortest answer, right? When you're tweeting, when you're posting, when you're writing, uh, it's all written communications. When you're sending emails, it's all written communications. Texts are, are written communications too. Mm-hmm. I mean, we generally don't send short blip videos as a conversation to one another. And if we do, it's every once in a while. So writing as a part of how we communicate is a much bigger factor than it was uh, several decades ago. And so the ability to write the way you talk, the ability to write in a human way is a pretty important skill on every level. And more difficult than it sounds. Yeah. I mean, I do think there are some people who are just naturally good at it and people who struggle with it. Uh, And as someone who maybe was naturally good at it, because look, I chose to be an English major, not because I was terrible at it, right? I liked writing. I like writing now. Uh, Evidently, Mr. Six Timers Club. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Actually, you've written more books than that, so. Yeah, we, uh, there was one um, kind of black sheep that we don't talk about, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but um, yeah, I mean, just the ability to, to say what you mean when you write is, a skill that translates into every aspect of life. I mean, sure, business, definitely communicating with with others, having a great online dating profile. I mean, that's writing also. You know, like there's just every aspect of life, like positive 
things come from being a good writer. Mm-hmm. And writing for to be understood by whoever is that's uh, receiving the message. And actually, you had there's there's like three rules. One of them you just mentioned: write like you talk. And then the second one, I was a little surprised. You said use just enough words. In other words, we've always heard, you know, don't use so many words. But you're saying there's actually another extreme to that where somebody might respond more virtually with like one word answers, which can also send the wrong message. Yeah. I mean, imagine you're saying, uh, do you want to have Thai food or Indian food for dinner? And someone responds, okay. What does that mean? Like, okay, to what? Right? Like, so, I mean, there are definitely too few words where like, we don't understand what you mean. Uh, And so just being brief or just kind of quickly sharing a response without actually looking at what someone's asking you or looking at what someone needs, like that doesn't work because people mix it up. They mess it up. Mm -hmm. I had a client like that once and it was really, it drove me nuts. And then it just became really funny because we would ask her a very simple question. It wouldn't be terribly important, but it was a perfect kind of thing to send an email. Like, do you want a horizontal or a vertical layout on this particular ad? Because you bought a half page. Uh, Did did you have a preference? And she would say, um, do you want A or B? And she would often say, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe she just wasn't reading the emails, but it was really, really kind of uh, funny. So it made me start to focus more carefully on what we're asking. The other one you said, always choose clarity. And it reminded me of the notion of Clarity trumps clever. <laughs> yeah, uh, it it, uh, it does, and there are there are definitely more confusing and complex ways to say things. And one of the lessons, or one of the ways that I use to try and and figure out which one I'm using is, I will take something that I've written and I will read it out loud. And if it sounds like something that I would say in a conversation, I keep it. And if it sounds like something that I would never say out loud, then I change it. That's great advice. That's great advice. And, 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 and we don't do that uh, enough. So you mentioned in the book something that surprised me. Uh, well, many things. But you said your core team includes five colleagues all working remotely. You've worked with each of them for years, and you've never met three of them in real life. Talk about some of the rules for building trust amongst uh, virtual or, or remote teams. One of the, the rules that I think is, is, is really gone far for me is proactively sharing information with someone before they need it. So mm-hmm. when you have, so for example, I have a, a, a speaking agent, she books all of my talks. And when I, get something new. I mean, that is a relationship based on trust because she deals with all of the inquiries that come in. And so some speakers, when they have that type of relationship will say, oh, I know this person over here. I can do a deal with them on my own. I don't need to involve my agent. And they're just trying to save the commission or make it easier for themselves or whatever it is. Right. And what ends up happening is that sometimes they'll get away with it and it'll be fine. And sometimes something will happen where they'll email, somebody will email the agent instead of you at some point. And then the agent's all of a sudden like, hey, wait, wait, why, where's this coming from? Like, why are you doing this? And people figure it out. So like one of the things that's really helped me is anything that I'm doing, even if I do, like, for example, if I know somebody and they say, hey, can you come on this thing for me? And we're going to do this. I will proactively let her know, even when there's no reason to. I don't need her to negotiate anything in that. I don't need her to do anything in that. But I'll send a note to her and say, hey, I'm doing this over here. I just wanted to let you know so that you know all the stuff I'm doing. 
And because I've done that for years and years, now she knows that like anything that comes up, I'm always going to tell her. And if there is something that happens where she didn't know about it, she knows that I'm not trying to do something sneaky. I probably just forgot or something just happened. And so we have this relationship that's based on trust because I'm always proactively sharing that. And so Mm. that's just like one way to build that virtual trust. And it's not based on a face-to-face interaction because like I said, we've never met. Oh really? Yeah, interesting. She, she she's uh, one of the ones. There were two others on that this list, uh, and one of them was, "Do what you say you will do." <laughs> I, this one is really what drives me nuts. In other words, I could be in a meeting or working with a colleague or client or prospect or whatever, but somebody will say they're going to do something, and they didn't have to say that. And I think, okay, great. And then they don't do it. Even if something as simple as "I'm going to call you tomorrow." with the answer to that question. Oh, okay, great. They didn't have to tell me that, but then they don't do it. It just, it really chips away uh, when you do make a promise like that. And uh, I don't know, but when you do, when I do encounter somebody who says, who does what they actually said they were going to do, regardless of how insignificant it might seem, I give them mad trust points for that. Yeah. And I think that um, it is, uh, look, I I try uh, as, as hard as I, as I can to, to follow all of these. And, you know, sometimes I I don't quite manage to make it happen, but, but yeah, these are all, uh, these are all indications of, of whether you're trustworthy. You're right. And you have less to go on. One of the other was, was have a personality. What, what do you say to somebody who's maybe more reserved and working in an environment where they're, you know, very fearful and uh, afraid to um, sort of uh, look different? What do you mean by have a personality? To me, have a personality means don't be afraid to to let people in and, and be yourself. And to some degree, this is what my second book, Economics, was all about. I mean, mm-hmm. we choose to do more work and trust the people that we like. And being likable partially is about letting people inside and letting your guard down a little and, and just being a little authentic. I mean, just in this conversation, I mean, we know each other, I think, pretty well now. Uh, but in this conversation, like you're uh, asking and I'm sharing some of the things personally about me that, that, that I love. I mean, you know, that I love the Olympics, you know, uh, certain things about, about me to come out in this conversation. And the more I'm willing to share those sorts of things, the more likely it is that, that people will also share back uh, with you. And that's one of the indications of trust too, that like, does our relationship go beyond just being on the same virtual meeting together? Yeah. And that brings to mind the, the you actually have a, a few things that just destroy trust. And one of them is refusing to get personal, kind of like what you're, what you're talking about. And it, um, you say, you know, that video conference call where one person refuses to use video because the quote camera is broken. We don't trust people. We don't trust such people because they aren't willing to share themselves with us, even though we are sharing with them. And then the second one brought to mind some people I know, (laughs) enjoying your own tech illiteracy. It is one thing to have a genuine struggle with technology, but there are people who seem to throw up their hands, declare themselves hopeless, and enjoy their tech ignorance. If the rest of us can figure it out, you can too, or at least you can try harder and stress about it like a normal human. Now, just to get personal with you, once a month, I, I, I get to have a conference call with my brothers for an, an LLC that we own. And 
There's this one brother I have. I'm not going to give you his name, but his initials are Bill Burdett. And this happens every month. I love you, brother. <laughs> but it's like, get over it. You know, your even older brother who is, he seems to have figured it out. So anyway, the third one was giving bullshit excuses. That, of course, that those three words just spoke to me. But it's like these bullshit excuses that people give. And the fourth one ties into your other book, being unlikable. You know, maybe she, people should just read like economics, but if you're if you're being unlikable, and I'll give you, you you say when you're rude, arrogant, or otherwise unlikable, you make it hard for anyone to trust you or do business with you, and it almost seems like in a virtual environment, it's twice as bad because there's so much else less that we have to judge them. Yeah, and we are. Uh, I mean, one of the things, and there's a contributed section in the book from um, Erica Dewan about the idea of digital body language, and just like what are the signals that we're sending, not just in in how our bodies are on these virtual calls, but also in just how we respond virtually with emails and and the signals that we give to people. And and yeah, it it is all, all of those signals are 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 things that people are looking at to say, can I can I trust you? Do I want to do business with you? Mm. So. Just two more questions about the book. Rohit Bhargava, by marketing book Podcast Law, when interviewing Rohit Bhargava himself, I am required to ask about trends. So what are some of the trends that will change the future of work? Well, I think, I mean, I am, as you know, a uh, trend trend guy. I, I spent a lot of time writing about trends. Most of the times when I've been on on your show, we we have talked about that because my other books are, are kind of on that topic, right? And, and I should say you do a masterful job of explaining what trends are not <laughs> in all those books. <laughs> Yes, yeah, and I think that that f- when I was turning my lens to to this book and and just talking about the future of work, which I think a lot of us are, are really thinking deeply about now because our the way we work has been has been very shifted. And so what is going to happen in the future? How is that going to change in the future? And a couple of the trends that I wrote about in this book and I kind of put under the uh, under the lens of the future of work was, uh, how is how are the trends that I already researched going to change the way that we work? And one of them that I wrote about was instant knowledge. This this sense that when we can get bite sized bis- bits of knowledge uh, on demand, then our expectation is that we can learn things faster, and that's going to have a relationship to how we do the work that we do and where we get the training and the knowledge in order to do it. Uh, that was one of them that I think really kind of stood out. Another one that, that stood out was a trend that I wrote about called flux commerce, which mm-hmm. was that the lines between various industries are starting to erode and, and business models are getting disrupted. And I think that this one is an example in particular of uh, one of the things that I get a question about all the time, which is, look, you wrote a book about trends based on 10 years worth of research. It came out in January. Two months later, we had a pandemic. Is any of the stuff you wrote about still correct? <laughs> like, is it is it still valid? And my you, response to are that: Are you on the streets yeah. of Oakton, Virginia now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you know, my my uh, response to that, my main response to that is that what's happened because of the pandemic is that some of the things that I thought would take much longer to accelerate have accelerated much faster. So distance learning and online online learning and the ability to kind of learn anything from anywhere. Obviously, that's gone way faster now because all of us are stuck with our kids at home and we have to figure it out. And so it's become urgent for us. 
uh, yeah. things like esports and spectators watching esports. Like you would have never imagined on on mainstream NBC, they would have a, a esports competition where NFL players are playing against each other in Madden on Xbox. <laughs> but that's what <laughs> we're that, watching because the there's no car drivers are racing from their their uh, yeah. living rooms uh, connected exactly. to each other. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think that, the, I mean, and I wrote a whole, you should definitely put this in the show notes. I wrote a whole article about 10 futuristic ideas that seemed like they were far off, but now because of the pandemic have come much closer and are much more real today. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think we see a lot of those examples. Interesting. Yeah, it's such a, I just, uh, the, the more we go through this period, the more that everything seems to be an accelerant for what was already uh, on its way. <laughs> yeah. So, well, last question, Rohit, after a decade of studying patterns, which you mentioned to isolate and identify emerging trends, there is one principle that has helped you to stay flexible enough to adapt when change comes, no matter how disruptive they are. What is that one principle? <laughs> well, for me, it's always be curious. Uh, and what that translates to is continually looking at and watching and, and consuming things that are outside of the realm of what I should be watching or what I should be consuming. So I'm always looking at things that are targeted at other people. You know well that one of my favorite techniques is buying magazines that aren't targeted at me. So I read Teen Vogue magazine. I read all of these various things. Yesterday, I was watching a, a makeup tutorial on how to put on makeup, not because I wear makeup now, but because- Hey, man, I, I, I don't judge. Yeah. And it was going viral. <laughs> right. um, so like- yeah, You know and, that, and that principle, Rohit? My- that principle has allowed <laughs> me to read all these women's magazines at the checkout counter at the grocery store without feeling like I'm, I'm creeping people out. So, so thank you for that. Yeah, you're, you're probably still are creeping people out, just so you know. But uh, it's okay. I hear that I mean, too. Yeah, you know, go with what you got. Go but with what you got. That's why they have security guards at the grocery stores for. Evidently, but I'm sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, no, that's that's fine. It's uh, yeah, it's 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 just a. I mean, for me, it's it's a way that I find unusual things. And I started uh, for for more than four years now. I've been doing a weekly email every Thursday where I just share the most interesting stories of the week. And two weeks ago, I started doing it as a video show where I would share those stories, but also share stories that didn't make it into the email, kind of the cutting room floor Mm. style thing. Mm -hmm. And some of the things are just just interesting for no other reason than they're interesting. I mean, this past week, I focused on a documentary about uh, the past 200 years of chair making. And like, wow. does anyone really desperately need that? No. But is it interesting? And does it show something different that most people aren't talking about? Yeah. And part of what I love about doing what I do is the ability to be what I describe as a story collector, somebody who finds these stories and collects them and curates them and tries to put the pieces together to say, look, I saw this story over here. And then two years later, I saw that story. And then another three months later, I saw this one and they're all in different industries and they relate to each other because of this. Like that to me is, is really an interesting challenge to try and do and write about and share. And, you know, you worked at Ogilvy at one point in your career, and I'm reminded of something in one of David Ogilvy's books. I think I read every one of them, and he talked about uh, the the really successful advertising people anyway. These were older books. They were all probably 50, 
60, 70 years old at this point, but he talked about how they were fantastic browsers and they were looking, they always looked at a lot of magazines. And I always thought that was, that was interesting. And I, obviously he was uh, dialed into a certain extent on the importance of uh, curiosity uh, at being a, at being effective. So mm-hmm. if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I believe it would be that working remotely and not being around people can be amazingly productive if you use it in the right moments of time. I don't think that people, humans, are made to just work remotely, isolated, on their own, all the time. I don't think that that's the best way for anyone to work. I think that we do get inspired by one another. And this is not about being an extrovert or an introvert. I think that we need these moments where we can gather and feel community and and be inspired. And I feel like that's what a lot of people are missing. But I also don't think that we need the traditional go into the office Monday to Friday from nine to five every single day. And I think that there's an awakening happening right now where people who used to do that are saying, look, I don't need to do that anymore. And even when I'm allowed to go back to the office, if I don't have to, if someone's not requiring me to, I don't think I will go back to that. And imagine what the world, our, our kind of working world would be like if everyone worked from home one day a week. Just Mm -hmm. the amount of fewer cars that would be on the road because of that, the amount of less uh, pollution that would happen, the amount of more productivity that could happen because that one day a week when you're working from home, you could do all the things that you are frustrated that you can't do at the office now in terms of getting interrupted all the time because you're in the office and you know all the typical office things that we were frustrated by. I think that that is the shift. And, and, and if there's one thing that people take away from this book that, that I hope they, they embrace in their personal lives, it's, you know, you make the schedule that works for you and you can do that. Like you're empowered to do that. And uh, if you can build the right skills, if you can build the right muscles to do it, and hopefully this book can help you to get ready for that. Cause I believe that is going to be the future of work. Yes. And I don't think there's this notion of bouncing back. In other words, everything we're learning and experiencing is going to stay that way. And for the limited time series that I've been doing with you, uh, Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails, the other day I spoke to Martin Lindstrom. And he's put out a a little pocketbook uh, update to his biology book. Mm -hmm. It's a great book. Oh, yeah. Terrific. Yeah. And uh, if anyone hasn't seen that, they should should check out this uh, really small book that he's published about uh, the coronavirus and how it's going to affect us all. And he talks about how everyone that's alive right now, or, you know, not infants, but everyone else for the rest of their lives, they're going to be remembering this and they're going, this is going to become a marker uh, that changed a lot of uh, behaviors and practices and, and, and beliefs. So what's just one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the, one of the many ideas from the book? I think one of the things that we can do today is to get better at understanding what is the optimal way that we work as a as an individual. And I think that that the the best analogy I could use for that is uh, there's probably certain foods that you've developed an understanding for in your life that you know when after you eat it you just you don't feel good or you you feel great. 
because you know through trial and error. And I think that we have to take that same type of discipline to the way that we work to say, look, for example, for me, one of the things I've discovered about the way that I work is I'm a, if I try and write between 3 and 6 p.m., I get nothing done. I can't focus on writing at that time. Mm-hmm. So now I don't even try. Like that's my dead writing time where I don't, I don't do any writing at all. I do other stuff. Maybe I'll do like bills and finances and stuff. Maybe I'll go outside and play with my kids if the weather's good, like whatever. Uh, but I won't try and, and write. And I think that that when we are putting that self-discipline on ourselves and figuring out how to work in this way, part of it is to figure that out. What is our optimal way of working where we can be more productive? And and hopefully the book has a lot of lessons to help people figure that out for themselves. It does. And that is interesting because it reminds me of a biography I read of George C. Marshall a few years back. And it mentioned that his belief was that at about three o'clock, you can't really do any thinking. (laughs) Nobody gets anything done. He would go get on his horse and go for a ride at three o'clock every afternoon (laughs) because he thought that was a better use of his time. So, uh, (laughs) great minds think alike. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to seeing come out? And I should add, you are a book publisher, so I know you know about a lot of uh, a lot of books. <laughs> there are a ton. I'm always uh, I'm always writing about it, uh, writing about them. There's one uh, from the former Surgeon General uh, of the U.S. Vivek Murthy. Um, um, I think it's called Together or Togetherness. I can't exactly remember the title. Hmm. You'll I'm sure look it up and, and put it in there. But um, but that one I'm I'm really looking forward to. Uh, I had a new copy here somewhere of uh, Dan Heath's new book, which I really enjoyed. Um, you should definitely have him on on the show. I think. Yeah, I invited him a while back uh, about their last book. So, if there's any listeners that know them, put in a good word for uh, your uh, for Dougie <laughs> I'll, Fresh. I'll, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll introduce you. Yeah, I'll introduce you. Um, he uh, uh, reintroduce you. Sounds like you already know him. Um, so. Uh, yeah, that, that could be one. Um, I'm always looking for, I mean, I'm sort of in the window where I don't spend that much time looking right now because I do my annual book awards closer to the end of the year. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me around September, October, I'll be fully in it. I'll have hundreds of books that people have sent me oh. because we're fully in the evaluation process for those. Yeah. And that uh, is that such a great list. December. Yeah, I I go through that list sometimes to see if there's any books that I missed where I might be able to go back and and uh yep. find authors that could come on the show. So I I appreciate you doing that. And also remind folks what this non-obvious series is cuz that mm, that's probably not going to stop. Yeah, the non-obvious um well there's two well, this right? was there's one. the non-obvious trend book, right, which is uh the mega trends and all of those different books. Right. Uh but, but you you've also- kind of stopped that for now, yes. after ten years of uh, blood, yeah, sweat, and tears, it was kind of a ten. It was a ten-year project, and I felt like this was a the, the right moment to to do the last version of it. And this was before the whole pandemic. I'd already decided kind yeah. of last year that this was going to be the last one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now I'm pivoting this brand, this non-obvious brand, to have a bunch of other things. So, like I said, I have the non-obvious insights show, which is a show live streaming on YouTube and and Facebook every Thursday at noon Eastern. Uh, which is all the stories of the week. I have the non-obvious insights email. I have the non-obvious guide series, which I know you, you That's what I'm, were yeah. mentioning, which was essentially um, the uh, series of books that are meant to compete with the dummies guides. 
and so those are out from multiple authors and I'm actively kind of recruiting more authors who are experts in various fields who are doing really interesting things to be part of that series. Uh, so that's another piece. The book awards is another piece. So like the non-obvious brand has all of these different pieces to it. And I am really excited about it. Yes. And I interviewed you uh, so the listener would know about your, you did one of the other non-obvious guides on small business marketing on a limited budget. And it was really popular. A uh, lot of downloads for that one. And uh, I hope that one has done well, but it is sort of the um, thinking person's guide to these things. Um, and it was so interesting to me in that particular book. Well, just like the one we're talking, we just finished talking about, which is what you decide to include. Cause you could have had a thousand page book, <laughs> but instead you, yeah. you cut it down where it's actually quite scannable. Uh, so it's not, you know, uh, I did. Yeah. And there's paragraphs. lots of downloadable templates and, yes. and things like that. Yeah. It's meant to be just what you need to know and not at all bloated. Cause I mean, the dummies guides, that's what they are. They're basically dictionaries. Mm-hmm. And so if you need to look up a term, great. But if you need to get something done and you need a point of view and advice, they're not so good. Yes. Yeah, so. Uh, there's also a lot of great resources associated with this book, and I'll include that at the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And also, one other quick question. When people go to nonobvious.com slash virtual, and those that don't want to buy the hard copy or don't want to buy the hard copy yet, um, and they download it, when they provide their email address, that gets them subscribed to the newsletter that you've been describing? Correct. Okay, good. So, uh, Rohit's making it uh, easier for everyone. So, Uh, We'll include links to all those things. This is going to be the king of the show notes because there's so much uh, helpful things here at marketingbookpodcast.com. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Non-Obvious Guide to Virtual Meetings and Remote Work. The author is Rohit Bhargava. Rohit, thank you very much for coming back on the Marketing Book Podcast for the sixth time. You are welcome. And now I'm going to get to work on book number seven so I can start the seven timers club. I'm, I'm on it. And that closes the book on episode 282 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And if you'd like to record a question that could be played and answered on a future episode, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Kendra Hall to talk about her book, Stories That Stick, how storytelling can captivate customers, influence audiences, and transform your business. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.